This podcast is brought to you by the Gosh Learning Academy. Hello and welcome to Master the MRC PCH. In this podcast, we tap into the expertise here at Great Ormond Street Hospital, giving you an overview of a topic on the RCPCH curriculum. You may be revising for an exam or just fancy brushing up on a need to know topic. I'm Emma, an anaesthetic registrar and the Digital Learning Fellow at GOSH. Today, I am joined by Dr. Alexi Bouvier, a general paediatric consultant at GOSH, for a two-part episode covering bronchiolitis and viral-induced wheeze. In the first part of the episode today, we're going to be covering bronchiolitis, including the clinical features, etiology, investigations and management of this condition. This topic corresponds to the RCPCH theory exam syllabus under respiratory medicine and ENT. We hope you enjoy the episode. Firstly, thank you very much for coming on the show again today, Alexi. A pleasure. Thank you for having me back. To start with, what would you like people to get out of the podcast today? So, tis the season to be wheezy essentially. And we're going to see a lot of children with wheeze, with work of breathing, with coughs. And so out of today, I want people to be able to recognize, diagnose and manage bronchiolitis. And in another talk we'll be doing, we'll be covering viral wheeze, which is its sort of sister presentation in the slightly older children as well. Great. So to start at the beginning, what is bronchiolitis? How would you define it? So bronchiolitis is the itis, it's the inflammation of a bronchial, so those very small end vessels right before the alveoli. With the inflammation of those small end airways, you get tightness of the small end airways, you get crepitations, crackles of the small end airways, and you get wheeze because of that tightening and that narrowing causing airway obstruction and impingement on the air getting out. And so you get that mixed picture of noise on the chest. And what you get is as a result of a viral infection. And that's again, one of the key things about bronchiolitis. This is a virus. It is 75% RSV. We test for it to cohort. We test for it because we know a little bit more about the natural history of RSV bronchiolitis compared to some of the other viral bronchiolitis, but it is a viral infection. And it is an infection of infancy and preschool. So you're looking at your less than one, definitely less than two-year-olds. And the peak is towards your three to six-month-olds is when you're going to see the most of bronchiolitis. So this is an infection of little people. And when you consider that because of the physics of it, a small reduction in diameter of the airway causes a much larger proportional impairment on the airflow, these are small airways in small children, any element of inflammation, of edema, of swelling, of mucus, of anything to that airway of which they get a combination can quickly lead to difficulty in breathing and impairment of therefore gas exchange and respiration generally for these children. And are there any other important risk factors for developing bronchiolitis? or for developing a more serious form of bronchiolitis, I suppose. This is a condition, as we said, of little people. And a lot of the risk factors for bronchiolitis relate to what kind of little person you've got in front of you. 
So the premature babies are going to be more at risk of getting severe bronchiolitis and of becoming unwell with it. Your under three month old, even born at term, same, they're going to have that higher risk. And then if you've got bad lungs, such as chronic lung disease, bronchopulmonary dysplasia, call it what you will, your home oxygens, for example, or heart disease, generally the congenital cyanotic forms of heart disease, you're going to be more at risk of becoming unwell with bronchiolitis, even the same virus on the same day as somebody else. If you've got an inherent immunodeficiency or some form of abnormal function of your immune system, again, you're going to be more at risk of becoming unwell. And similarly, if you've got neuromuscular problems, where if you think that all the extra work of breathing that your chest wall would do, that your intercostal muscles would do to mitigate any impairment within the lungs is going to be affected by neuromuscular disease. Your chest is not going to be able to cope by doing more to keep you going. And also you may not see it and may not recognize how unwell a child is if they've got neuromuscular disease because their work of breathing may look mild to normal. The other risk factor separate to the child is smoking. Smoking is bad. I think we can all appreciate that. And you'll probably talk about it in loads of talks because of how many things it impacts, especially on the respiratory side. But in households with smoking, you're more likely to get bronchiolitis. You're more likely to get unwell with bronchiolitis. So yet another reason to nudge and signpost these parents towards their GP, towards the appropriate services to try and cut down on bronchiolitis. So you've talked a bit about some of the typical features of bronchiolitis. So the shortness of breath, the wheeze, the crackles. Are there any other typical features that a child would present with that you might ask about in the history or look for on examination? Absolutely. So it's a respiratory infection. You're quite likely going to get a cough of some description. And with experience, I'm not going to try and act it out, but there is a bronchi cough that you will start to see that you spend enough winters in A&E or in a pediatric ward, you, you'll see and you'll be able to differentiate a bronchi cough to a croupy cough, to a whooping cough, to a chesty cough, for example. With the fact that these infants or these young preschool children are working harder for their breathing, they will often have reduced feeding. And that's multifactorial. Babies and small infants breathe through their mouth. If you block their nose because of nasal congestion, nasal snuffiness, which you'll be able to hear and see as well, that chorizal picture. If you block their nose and then you put them to the breast or you put them to the bottle, they can't breathe because they've got nowhere for the air to go. And so you might see that during feeding, their work of breathing physically looks worse. So that would be something to ask about. And similarly, a lot of these children decide that actually feeding's the thing I'm going to put aside for a bit and focus on breathing, which is not unreasonable of a child to decide by themselves. And so you may see that their total daily intake reduces. And it's especially easy to determine that through the bottle-fed, formula-fed children rather than the breastfed children. But even for the breastfed children, how many wet nappies is this child doing? How do their lips look? How do their peripheries look? Are they cool and mottled? Are they dry-lipped? Are they sunken fontanelled? Are they just generally lethargic? Have they got reduced wet nappies? All of those are a sign of dehydration and of reduced intake. Finally, the other 
symptom that we may not immediately think about in bronchiolitis because we're thinking lungs or rather thinking right at the end of the lungs is apneas. And these are especially important to remember to think about, ask for in the smallest children, especially that kind of under three month old and the premature babies. And we don't know exactly why it happens, but RSV in particular and bronchiolitis as a condition seems to be able to affect the respiratory drive. And these little babies decide to stop breathing every so often. And that can obviously cause you the cyanosis and then it can cause you the desaturations and it can cause these babies to be very unwell and decompensate. So it's really important to remember to ask about that. Has there been any pauses in breathing? And I tend to demonstrate that by actually just sort of drawing a finger across my lips and stopping breathing to show that there's no noise coming from me. There's no chest movement. There's no anything. And doing that so I can try to differentiate with difficulty breathing, struggling to breathe, which can mean anything. It can mean that they're working hard. It can mean that they're breathing fast. It can mean that they're breathing shallow. It can mean that they're very snuffly and noisy with their breathing. So it's really important to try and get as clear a picture as possible of what a parent means when they're talking about breathing being the problem. And if necessary, demonstrating what you are worried about and what you are asking about, for example, with apneas. What is the differential diagnosis for an infant presenting with breathlessness? And how would you approach this presentation in the exam or indeed in a real life clinical situation to narrow down your differential and decide on the most likely diagnosis? So outside of purely respiratory infections, breathlessness or shortness of breath, difficulty breathing, increased work of breathing, you, you may see it called different things in different places, can be due to problems in many different systems. They could be generally or systemically unwell in sepsis even if the initial source isn't in their chest. So here you'd be looking for relevant positives and relevant negatives to either confirm or move away from your suspected or differential diagnosis. In this case, if you're thinking sepsis, you'd be looking for things like fever, tachycardia, impaired peripheral or central perfusion. So things like mottling, prolonged capillary or time, for example. They could otherwise be in cardiac failure. Not all congenital heart disease declares itself in the immediate neonatal period. Ask about sweating during feed look for cyanosis, listen for murmurs, feel for hepatomegaly, plot their growth, looking for possible failure to thrive or faltering growth, consider a chest x-ray for cardiomegaly. They could be in DKA. Don't forget children can have their first or diagnostic presentation of diabetes surprisingly young. It's definitely something that has happened to me in, in my experience. Ask about first fatigue, urine output, vomiting, all the kind of diabetic symptoms. And remember, if you're doing a gas, look at the sugar. Don't just look at the pH and the CO2 thinking this is purely respiratory. If you've done the gas, look at everything on the gas, including the sugar. And if there's any uncertainty, check the ketones. Alongside that, they could have an inborn error of metabolism, which also don't all present in the immediate neonatal period. So here you're looking for dysmorphisms and organomegaly. So often these things are associated with syndromic changes. Think about developmental delay. Ask for a gas and check the ammonia level. They could have a pneumothorax going completely off into a different, uh, almost traumatic type picture. But this would be unlucky in younger children without clear trauma or obvious connective tissue disease. 
here you'd be asking about rapidity of onset, looking for unilateral signs like reduced air entry, asymmetrical chest wall movement, hyper-resonance to percussion. Um, otherwise, in the infant and toddler age group, they could have aspirated a foreign body, especially in the older infant, where they're starting to use their hands a bit more and bring things to mouth as part of their normal developmental progress. Ask about the rapidity of onset again, including any period where they were unsupervised, any color change, choking or gagging noises, any potential objects or foods within reach, especially any that might now be missing, and consider using a metal detector wand, which would be available in most AMEs nowadays. Either way, always ask about potential infective symptoms, so things like fever, cough, coryza, unwell contacts, recent travel, for example, but don't lock yourself into one diagnosis. Ask, look, and check for relevant positive and negative findings on history and examination. If you do that, this approach should help rationalize and prioritize a differential diagnosis for breathlessness and for any problem that presents itself to you in either a written or a clinical part of the exam, and then when you take it back into the wards, into A&E, or into an outpatient clinic. Thank you. That's a really great summary just for narrowing down the differential diagnosis. What investigations would you perform in an infant where you were concerned about bronchiolitis? Well, this is kind of hand in hand with what do we do about bronchiolitis? And the answer for most of them is nothing. However, there may be occasions where diagnosis is unclear or where you're concerned that something else might be going on, either as a primary problem or alongside a bronchiolitis or viral wheeze presentation, in which case you may consider the need for an X-ray. Whilst you will often have fevers in bronchiolitis, if they've got a really high fever, especially if they've got focal signs on examination, so focal crepitations, focal reduced air entry, those are the ones I'd probably lean towards doing a chest x-ray more and thinking about things like percussion as well, if there's dullness suggestive of maybe the beginnings of an effusion or an empyema, if they're looking really pyrexic and really unwell, they're probably the ones that I'd move towards doing a chest x-ray. Bronchiolitis, if you're quite confident in your diagnosis because you've got the classical features on the history and the classical features on the examination, shouldn't by in and of itself require a chest x-ray. If you're not happy that it's obviously a bronchiolitis, if you're not happy that it's obviously viral wheeze, you think there might be something else going on, the child's a bit more unwell than you'd expect, that's when you think about doing extra investigations, either to rule out some of the more concerning ones or to confirm something less concerning. And with a child with bronchiolitis, is there any benefit in doing a swab to test what the virus is? You said that 75% were RSV, but is it important to know who has RSV and who doesn't? So we mainly swab for RSV, generally to cohort children. In wintertime, you can often end up having things like bronchi bays and inverted commas where you put all the RSV patients in one bay and they can swim around in their RSV, all the flu A's in one, all the Araflus and the human metanumaviruses in different bays, et cetera. So the, the fact that they are coughing and wheezing away isn't going to pass infections across children because they've already got the same bugs. But it can also be helpful to screen for other viruses, often referred to as an extended screen or an extended viral panel, including if they're not responding or behaving clinically as expected. Is there something else going on that's meaning they're not getting better in the way we would be used to seeing, or in fact, they're getting worse despite us giving them the appropriate treatments? Some specific viruses, 
They also require you to consider other treatments. So if they've got flu, confirmed influenza, and you've caught it early enough, depending on their background, they may warrant treating with things like Tamiflu or Sotamivir, for example, and you can discuss with your micro teams locally or any other possible complications. So for example, if they've got adenovirus and their chest continues to get worse or isn't getting better, think about things like bronchiolitis and bitterans. We don't see it that often, but it, depending on the specific bugs that you find, you may have to then consider what's going to happen with them. Am I going to need to follow this child up longer than my average RSV? Am I going to need to do a repeat chest x-ray in six to eight weeks, for example, that I wouldn't do if it was just an RSV? So if the children aren't getting better or if they're not behaving like you think they should be, think about doing an extended screen. And once you've made that diagnosis of bronchiolitis, what would your management be? The management of bronchiolitis is generally supportive. Essentially, if they need oxygen, you give them oxygen, you maintain their hydration. And most of these babies should be able to have oral or like the NG feeds. And only if the NG feeding is making the breathing worse or they've got loads of vomiting, would I go towards IV fluids. In terms of other treatments that have been tried, and this is one of the nice guidelines I love the most because one of the biggest sections is all the stuff to not do. Basically, it's a viral infection, don't give antibiotics. It's a viral infection, don't do bloods. What are you going to find? They're little people that don't have the appropriate receptors in their airways for salbutamolar atrophin. Don't give salbutamolar atrophin. Don't give adrenaline. What's that going to do? And another common one that we see is suctioning children just before sending them home from A&E. So nasal suction of their secretions. Now, whilst that makes it better at that instant, half an hour later, they're going to be just as gunky again. And you're risking local trauma of nosebleeds and such like that in the nose. You're risking, depending on how often you do it and how frequently these babies are in hospital, you're risking the starts of sort of oral facial aversion from these children. And you're also risking a parent thinking that they need suction for nasal congestion or that they need to go to A&E for nasal congestion. So you're risking over-medicalizing and over-treating and making parents overly anxious for what can otherwise be managed with nasal saline drops over the counter. So it, it, in summary, the management of bronchiolitis is generally supportive, oxygen for feeding and for work of breathing respiratory support. By respiratory support, I mean things like Optiflow, CPAP, or in very severe cases, intubation, the first two being the non-invasive ventilation. But really, there are no treatments that fix bronchiolitis. It's a virus. The body will get better. How unwell the child gets, the body will eventually get rid of the virus as long as they've got a functioning immune system and you just need to support them. And it's just about how much support in which of those areas that child needs. So different children will respond differently to having an episode of bronchiolitis. And it's not really possible to predict outside of the risk factors we've mentioned, which ones are going to do worse or better. We know from the natural history of it that the peak of symptoms is probably around day three, day five, and we time that from whenever they started coughing or being chorizo, for example, but it's different for different children. And one child's peak may be not needing any extra help 
one child's peak might need to be intubated and one child's peak might be just a bit of nasal feeding or of supplementary oxygen. Different children are going to respond in different ways, but we look for the same things in all of them. So if they are able to maintain their saturations, and we know from various studies that have been done that we can accept a lower saturation target in bronchiolitis as a physical pathophysiological condition of 90% or 92 if you've got some of the risk factors like prematurity or being very young. We know that you can accept 90 for a few days and that's fine. And it doesn't cause them any long-term problems. And if anything, it helps get them out of hospital sooner. So if they're saturating above 90, ideally also whilst asleep, and we know that if you or I, Emma, were to plug ourselves into a SATS monitor whilst we were asleep, we'd see a slight dip. So if you know that a child asleep is saturating well, then you know that they're likely to be saturating even better when they're awake. If, however they're feeding, they are able to remain well hydrated, and usually we would aim for at least half of total daily volume, however they get that in. So rather than giving the long breastfeed every four hours or the big bottle every three, four hours, these children likely aren't going to be able to tolerate that because they're having to work harder with their breathing. So they're using up energy. They're very congested. So you can't block their mouth for that long. And what we would suggest is little and often. So aim for sometimes one, but often like two hourly small feeds, little sips throughout the day. If they're that slightly older child, small, short, regular breastfeeds, trying to get at least half of the volume, especially if bottle feeding, because you can actually calculate and direct them as to how much to give when. But if they are active and alert and settled and responsive enough, if they are having two, three decent, good volume wet nappies throughout a 24-hour period, then they're probably well hydrated enough. And they can cope with that reduced of normal daily intake for a few days until their body starts to get better and they will tell you when they're ready and wanting to take a bit more. And finally, with the work of breathing, they may have a little bit of tachypnea, so respirate in the 60s, for example, in the younger ones, and a little bit of subcostal recession, maybe a smidge of tracheal tug. That's probably about as much as I'd allow a child to go home with. But again, it's, you can't just say, a bit of tracheal tug is, is a yes or no. You have to take the whole child in front of you. But effectively, if you're worried that the child is unable to maintain their increased work of breathing, which is keeping them going, that's their compensatory mechanism. If you think they're not going to be able to do that, if you think they're looking more tired, then even if their oxygen is normal, even if their feeding is normal, they may need respiratory support to tide them through the worst of it. And always consider at what day they are. If they're looking a bit borderline on day two, they're quite likely to look a little bit worse tomorrow. And it may be safer for you to have them in hospital when they get to tomorrow than for you to have sent them home. However, if they look a bit borderline on day six, they're probably already past the worst of it and already on the way down. But which child is going to do what? You can't really predict. You've just got to wait and see which way they go. Keep reassessing them. If they're admitted, look for the same things if they come back on day three or day four, or day five, and look for the same things in all the children. 
And when it comes to escalation and respiratory support with a non-invasive option, either OptiFlow or CPAP, how do you decide which one to start? What's the difference between them in terms of how they benefit the child? So personally, I'm a big fan of OptiFlow because it's easy to start, it's easy to calculate, it's easy to wean, it's easy to stop. You generally start at about two litres per kilo, and that's a number that everybody can remember pretty easily. And then when you wean down, you half for four hours or so and then turn off if they've tolerated it. But there is a Pan London OptiFlow guideline, which I think is fairly freely available. And I would also direct people to whatever their local guideline or policy or protocol is for initiation and management of OptiFlow or CPAP in, in bronchiolitis. But generally speaking, OptiFlow is better tolerated, easier to use, and it doesn't make any difference in outcomes compared to CPAP. You get that nice humidified element of the oxygen to it as well. And it can often be a bit more comfortable in terms of the apparatus that they put on. However, CPAP gives you PEEP, gives you defined, prescribable, measurable PEEP, which OptiFlow doesn't do. OptiFlow, by the high flow element, in theory does help open up airways, but you can't rely on it for real PEEP. So in my experience, we generally start children on OptiFlow, escalate them through to CPAP, and then escalate them through to intubation if necessary. But some units may still prefer CPAP to OptiFlow, either dependent on their experiences of using both modalities, their skills, or their supply. And then when would you think about escalating even further to an invasive option like intubation and ventilation? Generally, the escalations are for work of breathing. If a work of breathing is getting worse and worse, more intercostal, subcostal, tracheal tad, head bobbing, grunting, all the signs that they're really having to work that much harder to keep themselves going. And especially if they're not responding to, say, the OptiFlow or the CPAP that you've started, you may need to think about escalating up. If they are having apneas, that's often a big trigger for pushing quite far forward in the escalation process through to intubation, for example. If they're becoming lethargic or really fatigued, not responding, again, that's a sign that they're starting to become more unwell and not able to keep going. Or if they have markedly raised oxygen requirement. So you're looking at FiO2s of about 60% or plus. Despite all the support that you've put in place, you need to be considering intubation and early discussions with your CATS team or the ICU team, depending on whether you've got one in-house. What would be your threshold for thinking about doing a blood gas in these patients? So most bronchiolitis patients don't need blood gases. Essentially, if you're worried about their work of breathing, you're worried about their work of breathing. And that in and of itself is making you think about escalating their respiratory support, even if you don't have or can't get a gas. Remember, this is to try and provide support to prevent them tiring, which means that if you do have a gas and it's normal, that's not automatically going to stop you from escalating if you're concerned about their work breathing. But the times I would consider running a blood gas would be if I'm taking bloods or gaining access for another reason. For example, starting IV fluids if they can't take engines. For example, taking a blood culture because I think they're more systemically unwell and I'm considering antibiotics. For example, if they've got some underlying medical condition and we're wanting to take bloods specifically for that. 
or if I feel the child is worsening and not improving despite the current NIV, or if I feel that they're moving towards intubation. So for that, I'd be looking at things like markedly increased FiO2 of 60% plus, or if they're looking exhausted and lethargic and reduced GCS. If I think they're getting that bad, then I'm setting them up for escalation and I'd do a blood gas almost to confirm, but also more to have a baseline of where I am at this level of concern that I can then compare to another gas later on as they're getting better or as they're getting worse. However, a normal gas should not automatically reassure you. A normal pH and CO2 could be that you've caught them before they hyperventilate and the hyperventilation will cause them a respiratory alkalosis with a high pH and a low CO2. Or it could be as or after they begin to tire, causing them respiratory acidosis with a low pH and high CO2. So they might have been breathing off all their CO2, and now they're tiring. Their CO2 is coming back down to normal because they're not breathing it off. But that's not a good thing because actually it means they're getting worse. So just because you've got a normal gas doesn't mean they're actually well. You take it in conjunction with how they are looking in front of you and how they are looking compared to an hour ago. Now, clearly, severely abnormal values should lead to escalation and trends are always useful in gases, just like in any. And at the other end of the spectrum, in the children who are less severely affected and who you think may be well enough to be discharged home, what advice would you give the parents regarding the illness? in terms of your safety netting? So really it's about reassuring them what they are going to see after going home. Knowing that it can get worse before it gets better. If they come to you on day one, they've still got up to four days potentially where they could get worse. If they're still not able, despite little and often, to feed 50% or more of their daily intake, you should be coming back. If they're not even giving you two, three decent-ish wet nappies a day, they should be coming back. If they're lethargic, floppy, ragdolly, unresponsive, cool, pale, mottled peripheries, sunken fontanelle, you should be coming back. If they're working really hard and it's getting worse rather than getting better, especially if it's not associated with a the fever, they should be coming back. And in the little ones, if they're having apneas at any point, even for short periods of time, of stopping breathing, with or without cyanosis, of stopping breathing, and I always make a point of demonstrating that, they should be coming back. So that's the kind of safety netting. It's about telling parents what to expect and when to worry. But at the end of the day, unless the parents are medics, and even then, if they're worried, they come in and it's our job to be able to decide I get you're worried, but I'm not because, and therefore you can still go home. Or I get you're worried and I agree, and therefore we're going to admit you. Thank you. That was a really great run through of bronchiolitis. Sadly, we've run out of time for today. So we're going to be continuing this conversation next week when we talk a little bit more about viral induced wheeze and how that relates to bronchiolitis. So we hope you can tune in then to have a listen. Thanks, Alexi, and we'll see you next time. You're most welcome, and I look forward to next time. Thank you for listening to this episode of Master the MRCPCH. We would love to get your feedback about the episode and get your ideas for future topics that you would like to hear covered. 
you can find a link to our feedback page in the description for the episode or email us at digital.learning at gosh.nhs.uk. If you want to hear more about the work of the Gosh Learning Academy, you can find us on Twitter, Instagram and LinkedIn or visit our website at www.gosh.nhs.uk and search Learning Academy. We hope you enjoyed this episode and we'll see you next time. Goodbye.